everybody, and welcome back to Ornate Stairwells, a podcast about movies. Now more than ever, I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Nia. That's not our slogan. <laughs> you stole the thing from repertory screening. I did. I just, I, the spirit moved me. Um, we watched a couple movies this week. We watched a, We watched a lot of movies this week. Yeah. Sort of. Kind of. Um, I watched a lot of movies, and... You, well, one, we already talked about some of the ones that we watched. Yeah. We did have that 30 minutes that managed to help us clear out some of the movies that we would kind of talk about too much, but. Uh Uh-huh. I talked about, like, The Wire Season 1 and F91, or we talked about F91 in the non-homophobia zone, so you'll hear that later. Yeah. Um, but, like, I don't need to reiterate. Oh, I have to say one thing about Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Yeah. So, towards the end of that movie, spoilers for Sonic the Hedgehog 2, uh, (laughs) Sonic turns into Super Sonic, <gasps> aka Ghost Super Saiyan. Yeah, which is not what they say within Sonic, but that's that's what's happening. Yes. Um, and so my kid was slightly confused about what was happening. Um, uh, was like, who is that? Because now there's just this new yellow character on the screen. I I remember around their age, a little older. I thought Zim Invader Zim was a show about an alien guy and then there would be like cuts to and then there's this other storyline happening at the school with this kid who just looks like an alien <laughs> because i just had that yeah. same sort of well that's a different character design so my kids asking me and i go oh that's that's still sonic he just went super saiyan and I'm sitting there on the sofa with my toddler and on like our chase lounge, which is just like literally like you're making like an L shape basically. Yeah. You have like right? a, you have like, um, it's functionally, there's those like sofas that have like the really long a L sectional. side sectional. Yeah. We're kind of just doing that, but with like a, a chase lounge and then there's like a cat tree Yeah, in the little, the, where they meet. Uh-huh. Um, so Emily's just over there, which is very close to us. And my kid gets out of my lap and walks over and says, Mommy, Sonic went Super Saiyan. That means he's a fox now. <laughs> this is a, this is a, because throughout the movie, like they very clearly color code the characters where right. Sonic has this blue aura and is leaving like blue streaks. Uh-huh. Tails has a yellow aura and is leaving yellow streaks. And then, uh, Knuckles is red. Is red leaves red streaks. Yeah, and he should get a doctor to look at that. And they understood. <laughs> they understood. Like, okay, uh, Sonic Hedgehog blue, mm-hmm. tails fox yellow. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Knuckles, yeah. Uh, Kidna red. Sonic yellow fox. <laughs> yellow fox. Yeah, yeah. So that's how it happened. But I, just thought it, I just thought it was very funny that going Super Saiyan means you turn into a fox now. Yeah, Fox Boy Goku. Send yeah. us your fan art. Oh, if you have any Fox Boy Goku fan art, especially if you draw them. I know we have a few artists who listen to this. <laughs> if you draw me uh, Sonic as a Fox Boy. Uh-huh. Or Goku as a in, Fox Boy. Or Goku, either. Export audio podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Or just slide into Nia's DMs on Twitter. Tweet yeah. at her, whatever. Yeah. Co-host, at her, whatever you got to do. Yeah. Um. um but anyway, aside from all that stuff, I don't know if you have anything you want to talk about before I get into it. No. No. Okay. 
Um, so eventually we're going to get to the movie that we watched a while ago now, Man with a Movie Camera. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I finally got in movie moded again. Oh, I'll, I'll say, our main segment, we're going to talk about, and correct me if I'm wrong about the order, we're going to talk about Criminal Passion, um, which was directed by Donna Deitch in 1986. Oh, so, uh, yeah. oh okay, 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 I'm with you, I'm I, with you. I have this slightly... Broken up so the ones that we both watched will be interspersed with the ones that just I Oh, watched. I just reread that. Okay. Yeah. I'm with it. So so our main segment is just made with a movie camera? Yeah, it's going to be the main movie. Got it. Got oh, it. There's two other movies that we both watched. Okay. Okay. I'm with you now. But I'm kind of grouping those all together into an extended uh, come on back behind the curtain mm-hmm. to the adult section at the family video. Yeah. Uh, I've gotten back into the movies. Because Criterion Channel did an erotic thriller, uh, like a little series, a little collection on the their channel. Um, and I was like, I've already seen some of these like within the last year. Mm. You can go listen to uh, previous episodes in 2022 where I talk about them. I could just chug through all these easy. Uh-huh. Uh, erotic thrillers and for so me. so you have done. Go down smooth. So... Uh, I already talked about Body Double last time. I think that's still the biggest one that I'd recommend to people if they're only going to do one of these ones. Remind me, Body Double is the De Palma? Yeah, De Palma, kind of a rear window. A little bit of a vertigo, too, because of his claustrophobia thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I'm with you. And then, uh, you know, just sleazy. Mm -hmm. You get the final shot of the blood on the tits. It's great. This is what you want from erotic thrillers. Mm Mm-hmm. But I've been watching the other ones, um, and so I have uh, three other ones from that that like channel collection, and then we also watched one tonight mm-hmm. um, that was not, but I would still classify as an erotic thriller. Um, heavier on the erotic than the rest of these. Yeah, Criterion has been very heavy on the thriller and kind of light on the erotic uh-huh. for a lot of the ones that I've watched, aside from Body Double. Um, and the one that was the lightest on the erotic was Jade. Um, it's also a little bit of like a, it's less like directly rear, win- rear window, but the basic, um, I know bedroom window is the one that's kind of rear window. So Jade is, um, it's basically like a CSI thing. Okay. This was the one that was more erotic. Okay. I've gotten it out of order. Oh, okay. Let me, let me, let me, let me rewind. <laughs> So the first the movie bedroom on our window list. is the one that was a little bit less, but the first movie I'm going to talk about is Jade. Okay. Um, so this is a trying to solve a murder, uh, sort of mystery movie thriller. Um, and I'll just like pop up so I can get uh actors' names. But so the main guy in it, uh, this one I don't even have to pull up, is David Caruso. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the whole thing. Because they're trying to su- like solve this kind of uh, sex-related murder, uh, and it's David Caruso. I was just like, I just feel like I'm watching like SVU or CSI or something. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's even a part where they like go into the lab to look at evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from 1995, which I feel like kind of like, at least for me, predates like what I think of as like that era. Obviously, yeah. he, like he's younger than I think about when I think about him in those. I'm ge- genuinely I'm young enough that I can't remember a time where CSI wasn't on TV. Yeah, 
I mean, I guess he was in NYPD Blue, so he'd already kind of done this. But like CSI Miami is not until 2002. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he's this detective looking into this case where this politician was uh, bludgeoned to death with an antique axe um, in his home uh, and ends up like, you know, spiraling into this big... Uh, thing involving like these sex workers that he was having other politicians like go to his like you know secret little hideaway spot to then have sex with them but then he had hidden cameras installed Mm. so then he was getting footage to blackmail people with this um anyway uh it then like there's this one person who david caruso is kind of involved with and she's just like uh psychologist who's trying to get into the hat of like the killer to help out uh but then maybe she's the killer but then maybe it's somebody else who's then jealous about people having sex with her because she turns out to be one of the sex workers and it kind of gets like convoluted in a way that like makes sense when you're watching the movie Uh but there's like lots of little twists and turns around that um it it was like generally entertaining Mm -hmm. um it is called Jade because the so the like sex worker persona that she has is Jade. Mm-hmm. Um, but then because of that, they just like throw in a bunch of very nineties like Orientalism of just like, oh, here we're gonna go to the like you know Chinatown to ask about the like you know Jade inscribed thing that we yeah, found there yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, there's a car chase that is a, a bit too long for an erotic thriller for me. I I don't want the car chases. I want the erotic part of the thriller. The, William Friedkin is like, this is the one day I'm showing up to work. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's there's like a a big car chase. It's not that good of a car chase either. Like, there's not like really great car stunts happening all the time. In can it. I can I say? But there's a part where it goes through like a a Chinese New Year parade mm-hmm. thing. I always thought the car chase in the French Connection was overrated too. So yeah. I'm su- critical support for you not liking the car chase in this movie. Um, so it, like, it was a movie where like it, it was a fun thriller. If what what you want is a thriller, um, I think the biggest thing is just when it comes to an erotic thriller, I want some of the like thrilling tension to be around like, uh, like sex itself and like people's fucked up relationships with sex and how like any erotic thriller that is going to be doing that is going to be like the director kind of telling on themselves about their own Uh or like the writer or whatever about their own like weird things about sex. And that's part of what I find fascinating about them. And this was, it was a, a a good thriller and there was lots of like sexy scenes in it, but I, I felt like the two halves were like Uh not fully coming together. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, in terms of stairs, uh, it is S stairs. There's a lot of, uh, good stairwell scenes in this. And there's, there's one like big staircase that goes up to like the floor where the room is that, where the man was murdered. And there's like a, a mask and it again, gets like weirdly, vaguely exotic, exoticizing about like, uh, African-American art or, uh, 
African art specifically. I think it's from Africa, mm. but it's like this like mask. Uh, but it is like you get the big shot up and you've got lots of like impactful scenes of people going up and down the stairs. So it was still an S rank stair. I mean, it's in yeah. a big, like opulent house. So. Hell yeah. Speaking of some S rank stairs. The criminal Colonel... passion of S rank? I'm trying to remember the stairs. We'll, we'll get into it in a, okay. minute, in a moment here. Um, it might not hit an S. It might not. I don't know. So, Criminal Passion, directed by Donna Deitch, 1994. I was wrong about the year earlier. Um, this is the director of um, Desert Hearts, a movie I quite like about lesbians. Um, that movie is a very, like... Very, like... This is a drama that is, you know... In, in modern, like... In, in like 2023, this is like award season type movie, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think that's how we would have thought about it when they were making Desert Hearts, but that's the type of movie it is now. Is This is an award season movie. Criminal Passion is not these things. <laughs> Criminal Passion is stupid, it is sleazy, and it is, there is a lot of sex. <laughs> yeah. Um, It's sitting in this like point between like erotic thrillers used to just be a thing that would be in theaters when it's not like full blockbuster season usually uh-huh right um maybe like once... right before the summer or right after yeah. the summer yeah or maybe there's like a weird lull period and then it'll like hit or yeah. something um or it, it's like that and then you're like uh made for tv kind of mm-hmm it has a little bit of a made-for-TV vibe. Yeah, this is like... But it doesn't like quite go fully that direction in terms of both like uh, the purpose of it to be just to show you the nudity, which is often kind of what's going on with like the Skinamax one, uh-huh. even as other weird stuff is happening. It's like very clear that is like the purpose of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, is to be on late-night TV and to show you boobs. Um, and also, it's a little bit better like made and produced than a lot of those... Absolutely, absolutely. Can you pull up um, actor or character names for me just so I can give people a very... I'm going to give the quick and dirty synopsis. Um, None of these quick... These scenes were dirty, but they were not quick. Um, (laughs) We basically just have character names and actor names in this Wikipedia uh, article. Oh, excuse me. I think I finally got over my indigestion that's been bothering me for the whole show. Um, so Joan Severance plays Melanie Hudson, who is the detective. Um, and she it, she gets her kicks basically by like driving around the bad parts of town with she's got the top down on her car and um she uh like like so the first scene we see her in, right? She's like driving around this bad part of town and these guys come up to her and like, hey, baby, you want to like fuck all three of us at one time? And she's like, she's like kind of flirts with them and kind of stonewalls them a little bit. And then she pulls the gun on them to show that she's the one in control. And then like she like picks up her police radio and is like, I'm on my way. She was the police officer the whole time because they they do a little fake around this. Yeah. So that that's her thing is that she she likes kind of dangerous erotic situations, you know. Yeah. And she's also this is like 
a post-Hannibal world where she's like, I gotta get into the minds of these killers. But, like, the movie doesn't actually explore that in any type of way. <laughs> That's just a thing that she says sometimes. Yeah. Anyway. so She says things like, uh, if I wasn't doing this, then I would be slitting people up or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If I wasn't a cop, I'd be a serial killer and... <laughs> I forget exactly what the line was, but I was like, if I was the other cop that she's saying this to, I'd be like, do we, I know we're the cops and we probably don't, but do we have an anonymous, uh, like ethics and compliance hotline that I can call right now? Again, I know we're the cops. I know we it's 1994 don't. and it's LA. <laughs> Um, but I just, I feel like I need to c- tell someone that my partner just said if she wasn't doing this, she would be killing people. <laughs> so th- she's put on this case. It's her, her ex-boyfriend, um, uh, like, and two other characters, one of whom seems to be Italian misogynist comedy relief character. Yeah. Mike Verruti, whose whole thing is to do really like uh, misogynist jokes and then everyone be like, come on, Mike, we're over this. It's the 90s now. Yeah. it's the- <laughs> I know that back in the 80s, I was also making these jokes with you. But come on, Mike. Hillary Clinton told me I can't make that joke anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now we got Mel on the force. We got to be a little bit more sensitive around here. And you can't be saying a pussy in the office, Mike. And then the fourth detective, this is going to sound bad, but there's truly no other way to describe him. It is like, he is like, he is the character who is black to sort of signal to you, the audience that like, oh, he's just uh, like, there's all this sex stuff happening with like the, the killer and the detectives and because he's black, he's just not involved in that at all, basically. Yeah. Because no one... And it just sucks. Because it's a 90s movie, and, like, black people are not allowed to be, like, involved in the sex lives of white people in this way. Yeah. And so he's able to be, like, the level-headed one, because everybody else is... Or, or really, she brings a bizarre sexual energy into every situation, and he just doesn't react to it. Yeah. <laughs> and then... And he's just, like... Uh, they clearly made him her partner uh-huh. like going around because he's the only one who's not reacting and they're like we're not gonna get anything done if we have mike with her speaking it's just of gonna be a mess not getting shit done these are the <laughs> okay so i was watching the wire and we've been watching columbo right mm. so they're put on this case and basically this very famous ballerina is murdered and her murder happens just minutes after um, this rich senator's son was seen leaving the room where she was murdered in. Yeah. So it's like, oh, did he like... And she was all cut up with like a, what seems to be a razor blade. And they find a razor blade that he owned that has her blood on it. Yeah. And, and so... he's like, I was just shaving her legs to get her off. Right, right. And then I just nicked her a little bit or whatever. And so like... So they're investigating, and this is, like, apparently, there's been the same, like, M.O. in a bunch of killings of, like, famous people around town. Um, And so they think they they think this is their guy, but he's got an alibi a little bit, and so they have to put the pieces together. 
barely. It's so obvious it's him, they just have to get evidence. But this is this is the thing, is that these are the least effective cops I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> I'm going to spoil the end of this. Uh-huh. Uh, but I just think it's funny in all of this. There's this moment towards the very end where they do the thing where, like, they almost, almost seem to be aware that you're just like, it's so clearly this guy. Why is no one doing anything about it just clearly being this guy? They're like, oh, maybe it was the, like, woman who has, like, a motherly feeling towards him, protecting him and, like, trying to keep him uh-huh. uh, away from all these, like, women who want to have sex with him. And then there's just, no, no. I wasn't. The, the was new it. woman character we introduced an hour in because we realized we didn't even have a red herring to throw at you. Yeah. <laughs> if she came in way earlier... It would have been at least been like, oh, maybe it is her, you know? Yeah. Um. But anyway, the, so, like, the murder happens. And, like, 24 hours pass, and then they have, like, one five-minute conversation with him. And then they just kind of go to the club. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, they talk to him again the next day. And then they just kind of clock out. And it's just like... Motherfucker, Columbo would be on your ass like glue. <laughs> that man would come home and Columbo would be sleeping in his chair being like, I was reading these letters of things that you sent to women saying you're going to kill them because you're really bad at this, my guy. <laughs> this would not be an episode of Columbo because Columbo would have gotten this shit done in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't have even had the bit where Columbo sees him and is like, oh, that's my man, because Columbo would have known. This is is what Columbo's doing in between episodes? (laughs) Yes. But these people seem to think that, like, one interview with one suspect every 24 to 48 hour period is, like, effective police work. (laughs) Yeah. And mostly, mostly, um, uh, Melanie spends her time fucking the suspect. Yeah, wanting to fuck him and then fucking him. Yeah, she wants to fuck him, she wants to fuck him, she wants to fuck him, and then <gasps> we we got the, it was like the, he, they found the murder weapon. He gave her the murder weapon. And yeah. they're like, it doesn't have his prints on it. Must not be him. Obviously it doesn't have his prints on it. He gave it to her multiple days later while like two inches from her face because he was gonna fuck her. Like, <laughs> obviously... Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's like, oh, he's officially no longer a suspect, and she's like, great, uh, boss, you gotta take me off this case, cause I gotta get some dick. Yeah, I'm taking my vacation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cause I gotta have some risky dick. And then, at, right at, like, the day she goes on vacation, um, Mike, the, the misogynist guy, gets shot. <laughs> And it's like this huge escalation in like the yeah. stakes of the movie. And he dies and they're like, no, Mike, who's going to make sexist jokes now? It's really funny. It's <laughs> so, so Mike gets shot. He's, he falls down and he's sort of like slumped up against this wall. He's sort of propped up. And then, um, the other guy, the ex, the, the, the detective who's the, Melanie's ex he like squats down and he's got his gun and he's like, Mike. 
And then he like pushes Mike and Mike falls over. He's like, God damn it. No, Mike. <laughs> and we thought that was the funniest shit in the world. And we spent like the next 10 minutes to be like, oh, Mike, God damn it. No, Mike. Mike, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> there was some moment within those 10 minutes where there was like a part where somebody like did part like a, a bad like kind of joke. And being like, oh, Mike, if you were here, you could have really delivered the your mama line. <laughs> or whatever. It was something about it your was, mother. Um, It was bizarre. Oh, it was it was like, because uh, Melanie is talking to the suspect guy. And then um, the, the, the other detective comes and joins the conversation. And he's like... Yeah, well, I was just talking to your mom, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, come on, do the your mom joke. Come on, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Mike would have been, what, Mike would have got, like, slammed that alley-oop down, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> would, have, would have followed up with, and while he was talking to your mom, I was fucking her, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know? God damn it. Oh, Mike. God. <laughs> like, if you were here. <laughs> um, so that's no, the part passion. of the movie that's oh. good, though. Yeah. The part of the movie that was like interesting to some extent, at least, is that I think it is exploring a certain amount of like, uh, if you are a straight woman operating in like a very cis heteronormative society and having sex with men and enjoy kind of rough sex or stuff like that, that like you are just kind of always in this position of like, this man could kill me. Yeah. And that's just like a thing that has to be contended with. Yeah. So this is the part that for all the uh, us ribbing and joking, and this is not my favorite movie that I've seen, but yeah, I did think that it at least did the thing that I want from an erotic thriller, which is to like have some sort of thing about how people are fucked up about sex. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. Tell me about the bedroom window. Oh, stare. So stairs in criminal passion, mostly. It's just that, like, because we're in all these, like, fancy Hollywood homes of the rich and famous, you get lots of very ornate stairs. I can't recall a good scene. I feel like the stairs themselves earn the A, but yeah. I can't think of a stairs scene that maybe gets it over to the S, you know? There are multiple times that they went up the stairs to where the murder was. Yeah. But that was, like, the most stair scene that I remember. Right. Same. Yeah. Um, we'll do an A. Okay. I feel good. Um, the bedroom window. So the movie starts with, uh, there's this kind of young business guy. Um, and he's at like an office party, uh, and his boss's wife is there and they slip out quietly, uh, early in the party and go fuck at his place. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the sex scene that you. There are a couple times where you're gonna get a repeat of her in the window with her like just naked tits out mm-hmm. as like a flashback. But this is like the this is the erotic part. Everything from here is thriller. Okay. <laughs> so they're you know I think like they've had sex, but they're still kind of in that like eh you know. We're naked and bad and fooling around a little bit. Uh, And there's like two sort of quiet yells outside. Um, And so she gets up and goes to the window. 
uh, and like goes to open it and it's stuck. So it like makes this loud jamming sound. Um, and she's seeing through the window. There's like some man seemingly assaulting a woman, like dragging her by her hair and stuff. And like the sound from the window startles him. Uh, the woman who's like being assaulted screams and the man like looks up briefly at the, you know, boss's wife and then runs off. Um, then the next day they learn that there was a, a another murder that was like in the area. Uh, and they're like, was this like, did we stop an attempted murder? Mm-hmm. Cause that's also, there's like that. So he comes because it was at his, his apartment and because he was sleeping with his boss's wife, she can't come forward and talk about what she saw because then she would be like admitting to the affair. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't want to do that. So basically, but they're like, we have information that could help catch a, a serial killer. Uh, cause this might be tied to like another killing previously or something too. Um, and so the plan is like, she tells him like, here's everything that I remember. You call the police, tell them what you know. Um, and so he does that. And then they like, uh, the police immediately come over, uh, and are like looking out the window and asking questions. Um, and he's getting kind of nervous because he didn't actually see it. Uh, they like ask what type of jacket. And she just said it was like a beige jacket. Like, is it, was it a windbreaker or was it a trench coat or, uh, and then he, you know, makes it up on the spot and then double checks with her. And it's like, Oh, okay. It was correct. Um, and so they're like, okay, we're done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've helped out. Um, but then they call him in again and he has to do the like lineup of people. Oh God. Uh, and he's like, he didn't see, he's going off of the description that the woman gave him. Oh no. Um, and so there's this one guy that just gives him bad vibes, but he's like, I'm not going to just say like this guy cause of bad vibes, but like really gives him bad vibes. And so he's like, I just, I don't feel, I don't, none of them like feel for sure mm-hmm. right now. Um, but then he stalks the guy. Uh, this is gonna go so well for him so I'm not gonna like go into all the details of the plot now people can watch it there's some like interesting I think it's like a fun thriller but like there's again the erotics are are gone Mm -hmm. it's a good thriller I liked it as a thriller uh huh Uh, I felt let down being told that this was an erotic thriller right yeah um but yeah, things kind of are escalating around this. Um, and one of the things that this is like spoiling a little bit. Um, so as stuff like continues to get, so there's another murder. Um, and he was like stalking the guy to this bar. Nobody remembers seeing a, the guy who matches like the actual description that he gave, but there's a waitress that remembers him being there. Mm-hmm. The, the like main character. Um, and so now the police are like, oh, this guy lied to us. Is he, was he actually the murderer and he was trying to like give himself an alibi or something? Right. Or like misdirect and everything. Um, so now the, the cops are after him thinking that maybe he's the one. Um, but then there's also these moments where he's like, I've, you know, uh, I know you've got someone following you and they kind of look at each other where you're like, are they surprised that he 
caught that they were following him or did they not have somebody following him? Um, is somebody else following him? Right. Um, but yeah, thing, things escalate. The The one part that I was a little frustrating is because, so one of the tensions becomes, okay, in order to like, uh, you know, cl- have his innocence, she needs to come forward mm-hmm. and say, like, this is what I saw. I was there. You know, we were sleeping together. I was having an affair on my husband, but I saw this murderer. I'm going to like come forward and say this, mm-hmm. even if it means like making things worse with my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could do this like interesting tension as it progresses where you could have her having to make like a, a choice. And I think it, if I was doing this, I think it'd be very interesting if it's like, she never comes forward. She's like, I'm going to preserve my marriage and not say that I slept with you. Mm-hmm. Even if that means that you might end up like this, the, the Serial killer goes free and you end up in prison. Right. I'm like willing to do that or whatever. Uh, Instead, what happens is she tells her husband what happened, but doesn't come forward to the police. And then before the main character can like fully explain so that maybe she will come forward and say everything, the serial killer kills her. Okay. And it felt like a letdown. In, yeah, in every, I see. Because I wanted the actual like tension around like how far is someone willing to go to like cover up their affair and yeah, yeah. I see if I'm writing this movie how I get to that point. Yeah, but I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I don't yeah. think it works. I think it provides less interesting. It provides like immediate dramatic uh, like thriller tension, but it doesn't give me. Again, this is the part where I was like, maybe this is where it's going to become more of the erotic thriller again. Is mm-hmm. like. Uh, how far will she go to keep the secret of uh-huh. like her infidelities and things? Still not exactly what I usually want from an erotic thriller, but there's something there. Uh-huh. But, yeah, it it, it, it went just the full thriller option where you get her murdered at a big fancy ballet and stuff. Mm-hmm. But nobody sees the murderer. But then she dies in the main character's arms, so everyone thinks he did it. Well, you want to talk about a movie that goes fully on the erotic side? Um, oh, in terms of stairs, uh, I feel like there are some decent stairs, but I don't remember them now. So I'm going to do like an A minus. Sure. But like, I remember there being a fair number of like staircases. I just, I can't think of like a particular scene. Um, the, the, so throughout all this, he also becomes friends with, uh, or like, uh, gets to know the the woman who was being assaulted, and then like the assault uh, potential murder was like thwarted. Um, this is the other thing. I feel like she could be like, "This is not the man who was assaulting me." I can very clearly say, mm-hmm. "Like, <laughs> I can just tell the guy I was fucking." That's not, yeah, yeah. Well, she. I don't think she was being. Uh, fucked at that point, but oh was, yeah, 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 was like dragging me off and stuff. Like I didn't have a very clear picture where I can say it was one of these guys, but I'm like very certain it wasn't him. Uh huh. <laughs> um. Anyway, because she is very certain of that. She also figures out about the affair and what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I like her as an act, like actress. I thought she was really good in it. So, um. But yeah. Uh. Um, Erotic thriller that's really uh, heavy on the erotic. Yeah. 
a little bit of thriller in there. Yeah. So, we watched A Snake of June, um, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto, most famous for Tetsuo the Iron Man. Yep. Um, this this is, is in that box set from Arrow. Um, and it is also on the Arrow app, so if you have yeah. arrow-player.com, um, you can just go find it there pretty easy. Um, so this is a 70-minute movie, 77-minute movie. Um, uh, I've just had the worst indigestion. Yeah. Um, it's from 2002. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, also, before we get into, like, general plot stuff, uh, it was shot in black and white, and then I, I was trying to figure out while watching it, was this, um, like, a, a digital post-production making things blue or was this like dying film stock? Um, I want to say it was maybe died that way just because there is so much in the movie about the chemical process of making yeah. photos that I wonder, I, I, I don't know, but it feels like with a movie that's so concerned with the, like going in the dark room, it feels like maybe that's how you would do that for this movie, you know? Yeah. But anyway, um, so we have three main characters. We have, um, Rinko. Um, we have her husband, Shigehiko. Yep. Um, and then we have in, in this list we're looking at, he's given the name Iguchi. Um, he maybe gets the name at the end. Maybe, but this, this is a character who is played by Sukamoto himself. Um, and basically Rinko works at a suicide hotline. And um, Sukamoto's character um, called her one day, and he helped her out. And so um, he does what yeah, any... like she sort of helped him, and then he does what anyone would do, which is start stalking her and taking illicit photos of her when she like is. So she's in this like very like boring marriage. Um, her husband is just this like guy who just works and cleans, works and cleans. That's all he does. Yeah. Um, and in you see him cleaning the shower drain multiple times in this movie. Yeah. And, um, the, the thing like in, in her private moments, she like puts on a, like sh- a, a slutty mini skirt and like kind of imagines herself walking around town with it. She doesn't walk around town with it. She just, she's not, she's trying to be, you know, the, the sort of good conservative wife sort of figure. She goes to work, she comes home. Um, and so, um, Iguchi, um, like, calls her on a cell phone, and is like, yeah. hey, I have... He first, a like, delivers, like, packages, where it's like, yeah. your husband's secrets, or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's, like, photos of her, like, masturbating, and, like, with the skirt and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and then one of the packages has the cell phone, and it is funny when it, like, the... I mean, he's probably, like, stalking her at the moment, mm-hmm. and that knows, but just, like, the phone comes out, and then immediately starts ringing. Right, yeah. <laughs> um... In the way that, like, only happens in movies. Right. Um... And so he's like, I've got, I'll give you the negatives, but you have to, um, like, do what I say. And so d- has this, she, like, 
um, goes to the train station and in the bathroom stall has to put on the miniskirt and walk around. And then yeah. she goes to the department store. And she has like the phone in her pocket with like a earbud going up where he's talking and giving yeah. her the instructions. Yeah. Um, and like he um, is like, oh, now I want you to go into the bathroom star- stall and like put a dildo in and leave the re- remote for it where I can get it. Yeah. Um, and so she's like walking around town and. This is a, like, very distressing experience for her. She is not having a good time. Is she? Hmm? And she gets to the very end of it where she gets, like, uh, yeah, because it's, like, you know, going and buying. There's the great buying the, like, vibrator scene uh-huh. at the, the sex shop where all the people working in there are just, like, I work here. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, like, say it, but they just have that vibe of, like, you are so nervous. I work here. Well, like, I get people at my job who come in and are like, oh, my gosh, I'm really sorry. I hope this isn't, like, a complicated order. Um, You know, it's just that, like, my girlfriend got it this one time, and now I'm really hooked on it. And it's, I know, it's really complicated. And I'm like, bruh, people order complicated drinks all damn day. You yeah. are making it weird by drawing attention to your own anxiety. Similarly, the other thing is so often when people would do that, it, they would then get to the end of it and they'd be like, uh, so can you do the like grande uh, macchiato, but like do the the <laughs> shots on the bottom instead of the top and then do some extra caramel? And you're like, yeah, I can extremely. Do yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, that's all the people who are the most anxious about about ordering drinks that are weird are like truly just like. Can I get, like, a grande ice white mocha, but, like, no whipped cream? Is that, like, okay? Like, light ice? (laughs) Um, And truly, the actual monsters are just, like, pull up to the box. Venti venti mocha, decaf, non-fat, no whip, no foam, extra hot. Uh, I want you to double cup it. Don't put a sleeve on it. Please put a stopper in it. I don't need a tray this time because I have the tray that you gave me yesterday. But when I come back tomorrow, I expect you to remember if I had a tray today. I'm describing an actual customer <laughs> right now. Usually when I do these, I describe fake customers. I'm describing a real ass bitch today. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but anyway. Anyway, when you walk into the sex shop and you're like, oh, I hope this isn't weird. I'm going to like go look at other stuff instead of the dildos first. Let me just, like, walk around, look at stuff that's, like, does it apply to me at all? Like, it's going in holes that I don't have. Okay, I want the dildo, actually. And then the guy at the store is like, yeah, I thought you were going to buy a dildo. You know? I thought it was weird when you were just... (laughs) You made Uh, it weird. But, yeah, so basically the on the phone, uh, you know, go out in the, like, sexy skirt without underwear. That's the other part of it. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and like walk around, uh, the sort of shopping district, go to the sex shop, buy the vibrator, put it in, mm-hmm. um, walk around with that while then he has the controls. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it gives the negatives to her mm-hmm. of the photos that he took. Um, and then when she gets them back, she just masturbates in the stall. Mm-hmm. With the vibrator. So was she enjoying it the whole time? Was she not enjoying it, but now that she has some sort of control back, is she enjoying it? You know, um, that sort of very run-of-the-mill, like, uh, this is a a very standard, like, erotic fantasy of, like, you know, 
I want to be made to do something and not like it, but actually I do kind of like it deep down. Like that is a very like yeah. normal thing. <laughs> um, and I in in fiction, I don't. I, I'm not making any claims about life. I'm saying that in fiction, this is a fantasy that people. I have. mean, if you have this fantasy, you're normal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. And then. I figured if we get too much more with her. So we, we get, do get the... So the next thing we get, because it, the next thing is that he calls her back and he's like, I still have one negative. And she's like, what the fuck, dude? You told me you gave me the negatives. I'm pissed. Um, And he's like, listen, you need to talk to your doctor. And so she goes to the doctor and basically he reads a lot about cancer. I think because he's dying. Of because cancer. he's dying of cancer. And that's why he was calling the suicide line. Yes. And... He noticed um, something on her breast, and he's like, I think you have breast cancer, and it turned out she did. Um, And I think it's like after she gets the breast cancer diagnosis and maybe tells the husband, that's when we switch to the husband's point of view. Yeah, and the husband's like, uh, oh, you can't have your breast removed so that it won't spread. Yeah. Even Uh though I literally never have sex with you ever. Yeah, it it would mar your perfect beauty, basically. Yeah. So then, at the start of the movie, we got like a like a like female symbol. Yeah. And now we get a male symbol, and we sort of switch to the husband's perspective. And this is where the movie starts to get weirder and a lot harder to summarize. Yeah, it get like uh, if you've seen Tatsuo. Yeah, this is the... where like Tetsuo shows up. This is where yeah. a normal movie go bye bye, and now now Tetsuo is normal like... pink movie, like pink yeah, film. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing is like. So so we had normal pink movie, and and then it's not like when Tetsuo starts, it like opens on the like opening up the thigh and like peeling the skin away and shoving the iron in the whole. This one does start with a thing of you need to use a big camera with a big flash or else she can't come. Yeah, that thing. But yeah. yeah, and so like this movie does not start at the level that Tetsuo starts at. Tetsuo starts at 10 and gets to 12 by the end. Yeah. When, when we switch to the husband's point of view, we suddenly jump from like five to like seven, you know? Yeah. But then over the next, like the last like 30 minutes of the movie from the, like the, the husband switch onward, it's going to go from like seven to 12 still, <laughs> you know, or like yeah. seven to like 11. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, like, Tetsuo is going to show up here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not the character, but just ideas. Yeah. Um, but some stuff. So there's a part where he gets like kind of kidnapped by Iguchi. Uh-huh. And taken to this like weird place where like guys have these weird viewing devices that are like a. They like, almost you, look like plague masks. Yeah. Kind of where it's like, it's like a cone where like the wide part of the cones over your eyes. And uh-huh. then like, it comes to a point, but then there's like a, they can also lift it so that there's like more of the cone where you have a larger hold of you. But it's like, but like, it's like attached and like people who are working this room will lift it. And there's like four rows of men in there. And basically you have these cones. So they give you this tiny little peephole on like women that are getting like, Ra- raped? Are these women working here, or are these I women... Mean, I think one of them is Rinko. Yes, I think one of them is Rinko, but also that he's drugged in this scene, so it's like, is this real? Yeah. Unclear. 
Yeah. Um, there are also moments when, like, she's getting the call from Iguchi where, like, he hasn't shown up as a human uh-huh. in the film yet, where some of it is like, is this just her, like... Is this her cancer talking to her? Yeah, or... or is this just her, like, desire to do these things given some weird external voice? Yeah, is this like a Tyler Which could Durden. also still be kind of what... Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, and yeah, so it's like... Uh, two women basically like scissoring or maybe double dildo or something. Mm. Um, and then thrown into a laundry machine with and like drowned. two men, like yeah, and then put into like a giant vat thing with like a laundry window, laundry this... machine window. Real quick, this is not a sex thing. This is not a sex thing. If I could like get into a laundry machine and just like sort of like. It's like I'm in a swimming pool, but I'm being like swirled around in all directions. I just think that would be fun. If you could come up with a, a laundry machine to put a human in where I wouldn't die, call me. Because that just sounds like a fun, like throw a few Tide Pods in there too. I don't know. Like just, it's like a really like quick bath. It just sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. This is not a sex thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then getting into the dryer and just being like, ooh, I'm nice and warm and I'm spinning. That would be great. Yeah. And then, so there's some other stuff in here that's like weird. So I think in between that and then the uh, Iguchi has the weird uh, machine dick. Yeah, because there's going to be a machine dick by the There's end. a part where uh, he then gets dropped off where he then sees um, Rinko walking uh-huh. In the rain. It's raining constantly. Uh, yeah. It's... This is in the same, this is shot in the same city as the hole. Yes. Not actually, but just like the same. It, there, yeah. There's just like, like it's place where it rains all the time. It's mentioned, oh, it's the rainy season. And it's like literally every shot is just yeah. like buckets and buckets and buckets of rain. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, then there's like, like after the, after the peep show thing, he like wakes up. And he goes home and he like, the, he's been starting to get like the sense of like, I think maybe Rinko is having some weird sex thing going on in her life. Yeah. He's been like, he's been like spying on her a little bit and like seeing little hints of what we've seen in the first segment. And at some point he finds the, the negatives uh-huh. um, um, that she has held on to and kept. Yeah. And then we get like him following her around as she does the same walk as she did the first time. But this time, um, she is in like, like last time she was in like sort of distress and she had like the mini skirt on, but she had like her, you know, suit coat over it, like her like work clothes over. Um, and she was like very shy and like slowly walking. And now she like does the same walk, but she's in like the mini skirt and like a sleeveless blouse and she's like strutting everywhere. Yeah. Um, and he's like following her, looking at her and they, she gets to the end of her walk. And instead of going into a bathroom stall, she's now just like standing in this like alleyway where anyone could look, could see. And this car pulls up and starts snapping pictures of yeah, her. Yeah. And she like throws the umbrella away. So there's just the water pouring down over her and she's just like stripping while the car is taking uh-huh. the photos. And she's got it's the... a big camera with a big flash. Yes. And she's got the vibrator controls and she's just like throwing them to the max and, you know. Yeah. Um, and then like. And then at the, the very end, after the big camera with the big flash has made her come, it's uh, Iguchi. It's just 
uh, uh-huh. Tsukamoto himself in the car, getting like this smaller camera and then taking photos. Yes. And seemingly, like, I think the Flash one is, like, maybe not even a real camera. Uh-huh. Or maybe it is. And then he has, like, his own little one. I don't know. But also, while this is happening, Shigehiko, um, he, like, starts, like, peering around the corner. Like, what's going on? And slowly, like, just kind of comes fully into her view. Yeah. And is has his hands in the pockets of his gigantic suit... And is seemingly, like, with his hands in both pockets... Like penguin flipper, like, masturbating... Yeah, Yeah, with both hands. Yeah. Which raises many questions. Kind of, like, sandwiching it like a hot dog in between, like, two big halves of a baguette. Yeah. (laughs) I was very perplexed by the way in which my man was masturbating. (laughs) Tsukamoto, please come on the podcast and explain this scene and this scene only. You can... The rest, you don't have to explain anything else. I just want to know why he jacks off that way. <laughs> um, and then they go home and they just have a nice, happy marriage. Well, so also during this, um, Iguchi, when she takes off the top, realizes uh-huh. that she didn't have the surgery. Right. She didn't get her breast removed, and so now her health is at risk. Yeah. But so they go home... Uh, they have a nice meal together. They're making eye contact. Uh-huh. And the, you know, the happy uh, heterosexual marriage has been restored because now they're able to have this weird kinky sex together, kind of. Yeah. It's um, also funny because because this is such a short movie, I thought the movie was ending here, and I was like, oh, I guess the moral of the movie is that if you have a bad marriage, you should try fucking. Yeah. The, the movie keeps going. But I just thought um, that's what the end of the movie was going to be for a second. So then after this, Iguchi uh, kidnaps Shigehiko again. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, like, kicking the shit out of him. And then has oh. it... So, so we had the female symbol for the first chapter. We had the male symbol for the second chapter. And now for chapter three, we have, like, it's... Like, a female symbol with two male symbols coming out of it in a sort yeah. of, like... We are all, like, the the three of these characters, they're all sort of, like, getting intermingled in a weird way now, you yeah. know? And also, like, the they are all, like, involved in this sexual relationship. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, Iguchi, uh, the, the stalker, who's now just sort of a part of this uh, sexual relationship. Uh-huh. Um, and the husband kidnaps the husband, uh, and is kicking the shit out of him being like, she didn't get the surgery. Um, he's like, she told me that they said they didn't need to do it. And, um, you know, all of that. Uh, and then, uh, reveals Higuchi has like a giant telescoping mechanical dick thing. Yeah. It's like a Dr. Octopus arm. Yeah, but, but as a with, dick. Yeah, but yeah, it ends in like a ball instead of a pincer. Yeah, and he's like choking, uh, kind of. Yeah. Um, he's like Shigehiko with, with. It's it, like, wrapped like wrapped around like an anaconda. While he's like kicking and uh-huh. everything. And he's also like dumping like blood that just kind of looks like gasoline on him. Yeah. Um, Which is also this guy having this whole thing around like dirtiness. I think some of it is just like getting him dirty. Mm hmm. Um,. And is basically like, you know, because of this, she's going to die now. Uh-huh. You know, uh, at this point, it may have moved beyond and was it metastasized or whatever. 
Yeah, metastasized. Yeah. Um, and then we get a scene of um, the husband shooting Iguchi, but then we also get a similar shot of him shooting just like a suit that is hanging mm-hmm. in their home that she is like near. Like mm-hmm. she's around the corner mm-hmm. and the suit is like kind of hanging out of the corner in the way that like a Gucci was kind of. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just shooting through the suit and then she comes out and then they start to like have sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at first she like sh- the, the breast has been removed. There's also, but then it's back and then he's like praying oh, and concerned about it. Only in talking about it. Did this make sense to me? There's a bit about, Shigehiko stole the gun, right? Because obviously he doesn't own a gun <laughs> for yeah. very obvious reasons. This random, like, workaholic, you know, Japanese husband doesn't just own a gun. Yeah. So he steals a gun and he's, there's like a bit about, like, he's running away and, like, the police are kind of after him, sort of. And there's like, um, this guy dies and they cut to the the guy who's dead and it's just like, the third character in every Kitano movie, and I don't mean that, like, in an archetypal way. I mean, it is an actor we recognize from, like, two different Kitano movies and, like, a couple other, like, like uh, Mike movies. He's yeah. just, like, always around in Yakuza movies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I guess it's just, like... He briefly, like, he just ran into the Yakuza on the streets <laughs> and stole his gun. Um, it must be, it must be Susumu, um, Jirajimo. Yeah, so. yeah. Because I saw Kitano as mentioned on. Yeah. Um, yeah, this seemingly this guy is only known for being in Yakuza movies. <laughs> yeah. Um,. <clears throat> But then, yeah, yeah the, the police are surrounding their home, but they're fucking... And they're, like, jumping up and down in unison, yeah. which is, like, does not seem like... You... It's fine. We, we, don't, we don't need to go into the physics of fucking. We don't. We don't. I just... It didn't look like good sex <laughs> Yeah, it me. looked weird. It looked weird. <clears throat> looked like more of just moving both of your bodies like in unison up and down rather than yeah it's like doing squats while holding her you there's no friction if you <clears throat> both go up at the same time yeah <laughs> stupid <clears throat> um but yeah then there's this sort of especially in that this like kind of ambiguous vague um you know she probably didn't get the breast removed. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this, like he has now reached the point where he wishes that that would have happened. Um, but, um, I feel like we really like this movie. Yeah. I think I liked this movie maybe a smidge more than you did. I don't know. I like this movie a lot. I, I was, when we were doing the letterbox thing, I was like, this is five stars. And you're like four and a half, maybe. And I'm like, "Mm, five. But I also don't do half stars, so I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, I feel like we talked about all the stuff that I really care about in this movie, but much like Tetsuo, we can talk about Tetsuo all day. Like, on some level, 
it it is Tetsuo is like an hour and twenty minutes. This movie is like an hour and fifteen minutes. Just go watch them. I would really, if you like Tets, you should watch Tetsuo first. You know, um, because is that his first movie? Um, I don't think it's his. It might be. I don't think it's his first though. It might be his first like big one. Yeah, uh, it looks like it's his second movie. Oh okay. no! So, well, like here's a fifty minute story of the giant cockroach. <clears throat> it flew in hell's like an hour twenty. I think it might be one of his like first bigger ones. This is his first movie that's not on Super Eight. Yeah, for whatever that's worth to you. Um, um, I, I think he just like even this like i think he does a lot of stuff like intentionally small crew small budget oh it even it helpfully says this movie was shot on 16 oh yeah um <clears throat> but yeah if you like this movie i would really recommend um it's not as weird as tetsuo is but the way that the weirdness creeps in is really good and i think um like i think all the like erotic fantasy of it is like fascinating yeah and I think and like well done in a way that's like hard to put into words on a podcast. I think Tetsuo is like uh, an exceptionally constructed movie. It's like exciting to watch. Uh-huh. Um, I get to people who would balk because of like the the amount of like body horror and kind of grotesque stuff that comes about. Mm-hmm. But also, it is a movie that like my feelings on it are fairly static. Mm-hmm. I feel like I love it a lot. There's this sort of thing at the heart of it about like. Um, pushing beyond like, you know, general constraints on you. I, I always say it's about being trans complimentary, mm-hmm. um, and like, you know, changing your body in ways and then like pushing that out into the world. Um, this movie <clears throat> obviously has similar like thematic parallels, even though instead of it being body horror, it is more like explicitly erotic and sexual and. Mm. all of that stuff um but like there is also a certain thing we we joked about this movie is about being trans where it's like oh why aren't you wearing the skirt at home in public like the way that you wore it at home you're like seeming happy and like full of confidence now you're in public and you're acting all shy there 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 is a there is a certain resonance that i felt in scenes of like ways in which um you want to be in public, but it is difficult to to get over that hump. Yeah, and certainly there is the fantasy of someone just making you get over your own bullshit. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so I think some of that is in there, but there's like, there's like, despite the maximalism uh, of Tetsuo, uh huh. Um, and it, like me watching it and like finding new things to delight in every time I watch it. Cause there's just so much like practical effects and, uh, you know, <clears throat> pixelation with human bodies, which that's people who don't know is like stop motion, but you do it with human bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, all that kind of stuff happening in it where like, I don't remember every single detail. So sometimes I watch it and I'm like, Oh, that shot was really cool. I forgot about that one or whatever. But like my feelings about like, what is the movie? What is it doing? Those I like feel far more just, I have it in my head. Whereas I feel like this is a movie that I can return to and have like different feelings about uh-huh. what it's doing. Uh-huh. Um, Cause there's also like various insert shots that happen. There's like recurring ones of like the water on, I think going down some stairs yeah. to a drain. Yeah. Uh, there's like the slug. 
or the the snail, not yeah. the slug. Um, yeah, all that. Well, kind of and stuff. there's also just like this time, I I very much am like focused on like what's happening, and I I would like to watch it again and just think about what am I feeling in this moment, you know? Yeah, because there, there is a sort of detached way of just like because it's all presented in such a uh, strange, abstract way you do spend a little time like just trying to get into it, trying to understand it, trying to sort it out, you know? Yeah. Um, also it is not nearly as like maximalist uh-huh. as Tetsuo. Um, despite that, I feel like if you're familiar with his work from like Tetsuo, there's still stuff where you'll be like, Oh, I can, I can clearly see this is like the same guy just from like ways that he likes to frame things, even though this image is far more sparse than Mm -hmm. what he would do in Tetsuo. Mm -hmm. There's still like a, a shared, uh, thing happening there, but I feel like because it's a little bit more pared down too, there are just some shots that are like absolutely gorgeous in this movie. Uh huh. And the way that, like, stuff is, like, cool and exciting in Tatsuo, but is, like, legitimately gorgeous, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, especially some of the, like, weird uh, architecture in their home and then, like, the plants and stuff. The, the, the space that they live in is unhinged. Yeah. Because they live in this g- gigantic, expensive apartment that is, like, barren of decorations. And is at like the top floor of this building, seemingly, and then they have a sort of like terrace that leads out to a little like domed shed. I don't know what is out in that little dome structure they have outside of their apartment. Yeah, I I don't I don't know what it's for. I don't know why it's there. Yeah, uh, I am fascinated by it. Yeah, there are, <laughs> there are parts of this film that just feel. Uh, abstract and dreamlike and disconnected in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's this great shot of like in their home where there's like sort of, I think it's just like fogged glass and then plants beyond it or something. That was just beautiful. Yeah. And then you've got like the kind of uh, weathered like wall next to it and everything. Mm-hmm. I think the cover for this, because there weren't really good stairs in Mammoth and Movie Camera, is just going to be that there's a part where there's a lot of good stairs in this movie, but there's mm-hmm. one where you just get like a staircase, nothing else. And it's just like the most bizarre. Yeah. Like, I don't even know what those stairs are connected to because it feels weirdly framed, if it I remember feels, correctly. It feels like the platonic idea of stairs in some way. Yeah. There's no like, because it, it just looks like. It goes They're from like, it goes from like uh lower left to upper right. Yeah, it just looks like and it's all right angles, it's all perfectly smooth concrete. Um yeah, it's like a very strange sort of thing. There's no like under them because it's all like one concrete piece. Yeah. And so it's just like light and dark too. Yeah. It's black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful stairs. S. Absolutely. S for this movie. Blue and white, really. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, band with a movie camera. We're going to get through this quick because I'm sleepy. Um, we don't have to get through it quick. I'm just, I'm sleepy is all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at the time. Because I do have to work tomorrow. Yeah. And then take a train to Michigan. Yeah. 
Uh, Man with a Movie Camera. Um, this was released or, or, or okay, Man with a Movie Camera is a Soviet film uh, directed by Ziga Vertov. Um, initially released in 1929. Um, and it, it's we it's weird to talk about Man with a Movie Camera. Do you, you want me to talk a little bit here? Yeah, yeah, you go. Um, so. One, Zygavertov, there's some, like, how much did he really believe this? But there's a thing that he said of, like, that all of his films are one film. Mm-hmm. One long film that he's just been making more and more reels of over time. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons why you get stuff where it will be, like, you know, a, a whatever in this many film mm-hmm. reels. Because it's just, like, the continuing on of it. Mm-hmm. Um, And this is, like, really the end of, like a specific phase of his career where some of the stuff after this is going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts with, uh, what are the, what are the like specific things that it calls it? Here we go. Uh, so the film man with a movie camera represents an experimentation in the cinematic communication of visual phenomenon, uh, or visual phenomena without the use of intertitles, a film with no intertitles, Without the help of a scenario, a film without a scenario. Without the help of theater, a film without actors, without sets, etc. This new experimentation work by Kino Eye is directed towards the creation of an authentically international absolute language of cinema on the basis of its complete separation from the language of theater and literature. Um... This is like a big manifesto-y statement that he makes at the beginning of it. Mm. And then what proceeds is a bunch of images in sequence, one after the other. Not accompanied by sounds, but accompanied by sounds. Intended to be accompanied by sound. It's just not on the film. So you have to provide the sounds, and many different people have provided many different sounds to go with it. Yes. Um, I would say the worst way to watch it is purely silent. It's not meant to be watched that way. Yeah. So, okay. Let, let me yeah, yeah. do a couple other things here. Just about, like, Zygavertov in general. Um, often gets compared with Eisenstein, um, who was another Soviet director, uh, partially because both of them kind of had this, like, feuding rivalry. Um, but also, like, when Eisenstein looks back on his career and is, like, writing a memoirs for a, a book called... Uh, method that never got released but that he was like working on there's like this big grand theory of art mm-hmm. basically um talks a lot about vertov in there because like that feuding interaction that like rivalry uh in the anime rivalry sense kind of pushed both of them yeah to to like their heights yeah um when this comes out the without the help of a scenario and without the help of a theater those anyone who's gone and seen a Vertov movie so far is like, yeah, that's your whole thing. You just do like, he has this whole idea of like documentary that he's doing where he's like going out and he's shooting in, uh, you know, actual people doing things and editing it together. He's not writing a scenario. He's not getting actors. This is a big key difference from Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. One of the main critiques of him is that he used a lot of inner titles. His inner titles are like very heavily, um, like invested in constructivist, like if you know, if you imagine like the Soviet poster with the like 
you know, intense typography and stuff. He had that kind of typography mm-hmm. and intertitles all the time. So when he says without the use of intertitles, that's the part that's surprising to audiences. Because mm-hmm. that's not what he's been doing. Mm-hmm. He also cheats a little bit because one... I mean, it's not inner titles, but you do get still the the it's text. It's preamble. Here. It's preamble. It's preamble. There's also some parts though where you get like newspapers or text in windows and all of that stuff. You're it's still functioning as writing, mm-hmm. even though it's not like putting an inner title in. This is where you get like the the Green Manuela, the movie that's being oh, shown yeah, at yeah, the yeah. proletariat, the theater, uh, which is his little joke of, oh, we have this like. The proletarian, like, good Soviet theater, and we're showing some, like, German film about uh, some drivel. Uh-huh. Green Manuela. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually a reference to some other, like, film critic who also criticized a different theater showing Green Manuela. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was excited to find an opportunity to shoot that specific movie being shown. <laughs> um, but anyway... Um, what what results is a thing that is like very focused on one this idea of like uh, reality or like documentary cinema that is still kind of developing at the time uh, and is very different from like narrative cinema. Um, and the origin of cinema is in like, do you know like Round Hay Garden scene no. or uh, let me just like. I think it's Round Hay Garden scene. Yeah, Round Hay Garden scene. We'll just do this live on the podcast. Uh, I think this might actually be it looping. But um, this is one of the first films ever recorded. Uh, you So, oh, we've, we got preamble. That's why this is so long. So there's just some people. Yeah. Now okay, yeah, I've seen this. Just walking. This is what, you know, the train coming at the camera. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole... Myth that, you know, has never actually been substantiated and actually in many cases seems contraindicated that people were afraid that the, the you know, train was going to run them over. Uh-huh. If anything, they were probably afraid that it was going to hit the cameraman. <laughs> Which you had the moment when we watched it of like, no, get out of the way, cameraman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's probably a reaction people had. But not, oh, it's going to come and run us over in our seats. Uh-huh. Um, but that's like the origin of cinema is essentially we made the photograph move, yeah. right? But that's like a documentary thing. But it's all just kind of random, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, my iPhone can do GIFs now. Uh-huh. <laughs> or whatever. Right. You know? Right. Uh, live photos or whatever. Um, It's like that vibe. But then it quickly moves into like the narrative space and doing like theater and stuff. Mm-hmm. Vertov is specifically trying to resist that. And... Pushing it towards like two different things that he liked a lot. One is the essayistic form of, in particular, the pamphlet. You get your little Soviet pamphlet that explains to you Marxist concepts. Because mm-hmm. most people in the Soviet Union, you know, in Soviet Russia after the revolution, were not reading Das Kapital. Right. They were reading pamphlets that just explained to you the basic concepts and people kind of knew because they lived in a society that had these things. Yeah. And then got a pamphlet that's just like, well, let me explain to you the basics of like yeah. uh, this one key thing of Marxism or whatever. Right. Um, and so everyone had this like working knowledge of Marxism largely cobbled together from pamphlets. 
he kind of wants to do something here. The other little pull, though, that he has is that he's also a poet. And he's a poet who's particularly taken with, like, uh, meta or intratextual poetry. Um, famously, he had a poem that was a room in his house where he painted basically everything black with soot. And then with white chalk, drew clocks on the walls mm-hmm. at, like, different times and with, like, a, a pendulum at different points. Uh-huh. And then his, one of his friends came over and he was like, what do you think? It's amazing, isn't it? And he was like, what did you do to your room? And he's like, it's a poem. Look, tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of those kinds of art, artist guys. <laughs> um, but I think was actually like less enamored with art as the thing uh-huh. than Eisenstein. Uh-huh. I think Eisenstein deeply loved art. Uh-huh. Whereas Vertov specifically wanted to do like, like the man with the movie camera to bring it back to this specific film is definitely using some poetry stuff in here. Mm -hmm. But at its heart is I think trying to do like a very scientific thing, which is not just to observe the world, but to explain the world Mm -hmm. as it's observing it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you get like the city full of lights and then you get the power plant with the smoke coming out of the uh-huh um whatever smokestack and then you get the guy shoveling coal right and then you get the miners and you like go further further uh-huh. and what that is saying is look here is the modern city where everyone's running around and there's the electric trams and everything all this comes down to there was miners mm-hmm. miners got the coal that is powering the plant that powers the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like the labor of the proletarian mm-hmm. is what gave you the city. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing that this movie is arguing for yes. and is trying to do. Yes. So, okay. It's hard to talk about this movie without sounding um, hyperbolic because it is, like genuinely truly a unique thing in the history of cinema i have never seen anything like it i probably never will see anything like it yeah um it's beautiful it's deeply moving um it's deeply marxist deeply marxist that's the real reason we won't see anything like it because you'll see other city symphonies (coughs) but there are not a lot that have the same like desire to show you how the city how all this stuff is created like by people working and also that people's labor is created by them uh-huh. having time to rest uh-huh. and things like that it, it it is like um the interconnectedness of all things like across yeah. the universe exists in this movie yeah, and we are also showing you while we're explaining how electricity works. We're also showing you how the electricity creates the little light on the film, and the film is edited together, is like shot and edited together, and yeah, yeah. and and the interconnectedness of all things in the universe um, is illustrated entirely in the medium of cinema. There, you know, without the help of a scenario, without the help of theater. <laughs> It is like purely through the the observational power of the camera and the like um 
uh, juxtapositional power of like montage and like putting images in sequence and creating me- meaning out of the sequence. Um, I like, I don't know, dude. It's the fucking best movie ever made. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to. We come onto this podcast and we talk. We talk about like, you know, we talk about like art objects. We talk about snake, uh, snake in June, and we're like taking apart this sort of like thing that is like this this art object that is constructed by an author and sort of trying to pick apart what is the author doing, what are we feeling, and. and on our best days, we're picking apart like how do aesthetics like accomplish those things? How does yeah. how does the artist use aesthetics to accomplish a thing in a viewer? And all of that is obviously happening here. Like I'm not yeah. saying those things are not happening here, but also this is a movie that while you are watching it is explaining to you how it's creating like uh, aesthetic images to then like create sequences to talk. Like it has. Everything that I could say about Man with a Movie Camera is inside of Man with a Movie Camera. Yeah, and it's said by it. Yes. Because it's also a pamphlet about how you make Marxist cinema. And there's also, there is nothing else in the history of cinema that I can compare this to. Like, oh, Snake Snake in June, I can connect that to Tsukamoto's other film I've seen. Criminal Passion, we can sort of talk about it in all these erotic thrillers. F91, we can talk about where it fits in, like, anime, where it fits in, like, Gundam, all these sorts of things. This is just a, like, genuinely, like, you just don't see something that is, like, unto itself in the way that Man with a Movie Camera is. Yeah. And I... I, It feels stupid to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I have one thing of, uh, so there's that one shot there. The one thing that also happens in this is there's a lot of like camera tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the thing that he was also sometimes criticized for is that he like really loved camera tricks, but I think a lot of it is his poetic instinct wanting to talk about concepts and do that by, like having images on the film work the way that things might work within the brain. Mm-hmm. So there's one shot in particular that I know you're like, yo to or whatever, mm-hmm. where there's a building and you have like the two sides of it. Like basically they, they film like probably one side and then the other side separately. Uh, so you have like left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for one of them, like the the left side, they're sort of rotating the camera so right, that it moves. Yeah. The like building is moving clockwise, and the other one it moves counterclockwise. And so what happens is you kind of get this like splitting and sinking effect happening mm-hmm. with the building. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool effect. Do you know what it what it's doing in the movie? You're looking at it cross-eyed. So, and this is the thing that like. I don't think it's a failure of the movie. Mm. So he's saying that he's doing this like experiment on the uh, authentically international absolute language of cinema on the basis of its complete separation from the language of theater and literature. Mm -hmm. I think 
this movie is in fact achieving some of that. There's like a uh, truly like international, we can make films in this like international language across cultures uh-huh. and talk to each other across cultures using it. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes we are still going to talk about things that are particular local mm-hmm. things. The the uh, proletariat showing uh, Green Manuala mm-hmm. is like one example of it. This building shot that often just gets talked about as being a really cool shot is another. This building is the the Bolshoi, which was like a, a theater where there's like ballets and everything. I built one of those in Civ 6 today. <laughs> oh, a theater that has ballets and stuff? No, or? the Bolshoi. The Bolshoi. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonder in Civ 6. <laughs> um, at the time that this film was made, there, was, there were debates um, and... I think it was, was, it would have been Lenin. Lenin at the time wanted to like basically just destroy the Bolshoi. Mm-hmm. And we should do something else instead. And originally I was trying to do it with this economic argument mm-hmm. of <clears throat> we should get rid of it because it's really costly to maintain. Um, and, you know, the, all of that money is going into it for we could instead be spending this improving schools in rural areas was mm-hmm. the particular thing that Lennon was talking about. And there was a lot of this was like a very uh, economic and like thing that you can address in like a scientifically minded way mm. where there's then arguments and it was like, oh, well, there's ways that we can like economically help out with this stuff. And then there's also like everybody has a chance to then come to the Bolshoi. So then everyone can benefit from like the enrichment of like ballet and stuff. And also through this, we are employing these people who have specialized skills that otherwise may not be able to like have Mm -hmm. the same work, but they've trained for a really long time doing ballet and now they will do ballet, you know, for Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. The other issue that Lenin had with it, that was far harder to do from sort of this very like, let's have a meeting about it was that it was like czarist culture. Right. It was like this very aristocratic culture that like, why, why do we want to have people go to ballets? This is not the people's culture. The cinema is going to be the people's culture. So this is existing in here where Vertov is saying when we are doing the international language of cinema to create like a Marxist way of talking to each other. Part of what this has to do is destroy old cultural things like the ballet and the orchestra and things that exist for aristocracy for like those sorts of people. But it's a shot that then a lot of the meaning gets lost because people don't have all the context of the argument that was happening at the time that Lenin wanted to destroy this building. A lot of other people didn't. There was like lots of tensions around it. There are people saying, why don't we just repurpose it? We repurpose the Kremlin. Mm. Why can't we repurpose this? There's value in repurposing. And here's where we get into the whole Eisenstein Vertov thing. Eisenstein would love to repurpose something Mm -hmm. for, you know, the, this effort, the proletariat. Eisenstein wants to repurpose the, you know, capitalist narrative film mm-hmm. for, you know, the Soviet effort. Mm-hmm. Um, Vertov says, fuck that. Yeah. 
we need it. We need to like rethink all of this. It's and it comes down to this thing where you know we had a, we had a little group chat thing about this. I think both of them are kind of silly, but I the the way that I explain it is like the the arguments that are happening between Eisenstein and Veritov was Veritas saying, Eisenstein, you are like this group that tried to reform the, like, uh, Orthodox Church to make it work within, like, the communist state. Mm -hmm. You are this sort of opportunist who wants to... There's a new world order, but you still want to make art that is, like, kind of, in some ways this older thing and we need to do something else. Uh-huh. We need to move beyond it. You're kind of a centrist in all of this. Uh-huh. And I see his point. Eisenstein is saying to Vertov, you are still stuck in this wartime communism sense where when there is this war against like czar and everything, we needed this like really staunch heavy, like we're really pushing the radical stuff because we are at war. Now we are in the state where we don't have to like, be in that mode all the time and you are stuck in that mode and I'm more progressive because I'm finding the way that we like we do dialectics between Mm -hmm. what came before and the new communist thing and Uh that's why I'm making this my film is dialectic and yours is not (laughs) so this is the whole like argument that happens between them it's interesting because like and um, I kind of see that argument too but I still think that Vertov is actually more like politically Marxist and pushing for true Marxist cinema than Eisenstein. I think Eisenstein just wanted to make good movies, which I like good movies, but, um, yeah, it's interesting because like, um, so I I think this movie's amazing. And I also think that the idea uh, that you can create this sort of cinematic language that is absolute, um, it's like, I, I think it is a very idealist sort of sentiment. Yeah. Because I, I think, I, I think on some level, you could create a language of images that sort of transcends words, right? And sort of people could see images and understand images and not translate images into words, right? Maybe that is true. Maybe not right now in 2023, maybe somewhere down the line, or maybe in 2023. I don't know. Regardless, I think even if there were this language of images, you can't get out from under, like, culture. And that, like, language is a thing imparted into people by culture. And you and I are English speakers. I do not know all of the English language words that you know. And you do not know all of the English language words that I know. Like, and I, I, like, I don't know all the contexts in which you know those words and vice versa. And like the words around a word are as important to the meaning of a word as a word, you know? And so like, yeah. And and that part of what Vertov is pushing for is this idea of objective scientific cinema uh-huh. but we all know our own qualms with objective science as an idea yeah like so <laughs> yeah and so i think like i think this movie is like a beautiful thing for what it does and for what it tries to do um and i think that lofty goal of creating an absolute language of cinema um i think having that goal got vertov to a really great place i just don't know that that's like a all that like 
Yeah, I just don't, I don't think you can create a language that, like, somehow is divorced of culture, you know? Yeah. Um, I And I think he would say some of his, like, he's specifically trying to create a language that is instilled with Marxist culture, but... I think he still has baggage around what that means. Yeah, I think it, I think if you poked at him and said, okay, so you want a, a language based in Marxist culture, now let's go back to the original idea and see, d- does that fit with what you said a minute ago? Yeah. And, you know, um, I don't I don't believe that, like, the point of dialectics is not to um, synthesize all contradiction into one perfect meaning. I don't think that's, like, what... <laughs> I don't yeah. think... Um, I don't think that's how the universe operates, and I don't think that's like how uh, Marx intended for dialectics to operate. Is oh, you just do dialectics until synthesis happens, and now contradiction is erased. I think sounds like cats are fighting each other. I, yeah, I think um, the contradiction is the point, and um, contradiction produces meaning. Um, yeah, so. I don't um, know. I'm sleepy and movie, rambling. <laughs> uh, I, I have a couple fun little facts about this Hit me. that you may not have known. Uh, um, Vigo broke his toe. So, Zygavertov is the director. Mm. Supervisor director, I believe. The uh, cameraman, Mikhail Kaufman, is his brother. Oh, fun. And the editor, uh, which who is... Uh, Yelizaveta Svilova is his wife. Mm -hmm. This is just like his whole thing. (laughs) But uh, Kaufman was a director in his own right. Mm -hmm. And in particular, because of the way that this was talked about as a cameraman's diary, because of the amount of work that he put into it, he wanted to be co-director, like credited as co-director on this. I can't blame him for that. Vertov did not do that. This is the last movie they worked on together. This was the thing that broke their relationship. Yeah, I'd be pissed too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, from what I've heard, I've not seen any of his movies, uh, but I hear that he has a very similar, like, I am trying to do this sort of explaining by showing you images and, like, the uh, causes that brought about that effect that you just viewed and things like that. Mm-hmm. But his is, like far more straightforward and is far more just like uh successful and was like just praised in its time as being like correctly marxist Interesting. and nobody remembers his stuff because it was not <laughs> it didn't have like the weird whatever electric yeah like energy that is happening in, in yeah. Vertov stuff yeah so but also i mean it was mostly just shot by uh kaufman and then edited by Vertov's wife so what did Vertov do? <laughs> <laughs> He's just the ideas, man. I'm sure he did other stuff. I'm, I'm sure just, he did plenty. Yeah, it's just funny to think about. Um, anyway, can you tell that uh, one of my professors in grad school was a scholar of specifically Soviet film and in particular wrote an entire book about Vertov? No. What anyway. are we watching next time? Um... I hope people enjoyed this episode. I, I've enjoyed this episode, despite being sleepy through the whole thing. Yeah. I also kind of knew that this was going to be an episode where I was spitting a lot of stuff at you just because I know a lot about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and you watched it for the first time like a week ago. Yeah. So. 
Um, so next time you you decided we'll be watching Daisies. Yes. Um, this is directed by um Vera. Uh, we watched the pronunciation yeah. before this. Vera Hil Vera Hilova. Um, Hitilova. Hitilova. Um, I think there's a little bit of. If 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 you are uh, if you are Czech and have in if you okay if you are from the Czech Republic or have family from there or whatever and you have input on how I should refer to the to the country that at this time when this movie was released was Czechoslovakia, please let me know because yeah. I know this is sort of like you know contentious issue you know and. At the time, it was referred to as Czechoslovakia. Now it is the Czech Republic, or um, Chechia is like the the new sort of short name for it. Yeah, within the last few years. So just let me know. I want I want to say the culturally sensitive thing there. Um, also, let me. I'm gonna watch that pronunciation thing a couple more times to make sure I'm. I don't yeah. want to be mispronouncing shit. Anyway, Criterion um uh, pushes Czech new wave stuff um periodically, and I just opened the app while we were in our like pre-show thing and I needed to pick a movie and I was like, Hey, neither of us know anything about this. My vague impression is that daisies is the, is the movie of the Czech new wave that has the biggest splash, like culturally outside of um, Czechoslovakia. And so I was just like, we'll do that one. Yeah. Um, It's like an hour and 15 minutes. So we'll have another, <laughs> no, we're gonna no. we're gonna have to do a long movie at some point, but right now we'll do a nice long two hour movie one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Some point, I mean, we got to get through David Lynch, but um, yeah. at some point we will start uh, Kurosawa, and then we're gonna have some long movies. Yes, um, but we yeah. might break up Seven Samurai over two nights. We will. The that is the only way I have ever watched Seven Samurai. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you get too sleepy. Otherwise, I get too goddamn sleepy. Speaking of which, you, you're going to have to go to bed. So yeah. where can people find you? People find me on Twitter at a tunnel underscore coffee. You can go to exportaud.io. Jesus. What are you kitty cats doing? We're in here. You can find me on Twitter at a tumble underscore coffee. You can go to exportaud.io to support all the podcasts we can do. You can find out more information about everything we do right there. The cats are like murdering. Go check on the cats. I'll do my plugs. Yeah. Um. You can find me at Fox Mamnia on Twitter and co-host. Um. Normally Emily would be dealing with this, but uh, she is in Michigan right now. <clears throat> um. You can also find me at Fox Mamnia on like Letterboxd, uh, Annie List, stuff like that. It's just basically what I use everywhere. Um. But go check out my other podcasts. Uh. Around the long fire, uh, we are we you know had our week off and we're back with uh, the start of Hamskringla and Inglinga Saga is just a fun time. A lot of kings dying. They were just, just wrestling. Getting fucking owned. They were just wrestling. That's all. They may have been fighting though. There was a lot of yelling. Hmm. I feel like when they wrestle, they're quieter. Sometimes one of them will piss the other one off. Um, and go listen to Ghost Divers because we're in the middle of. Uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans. Um, I think when people hear this, we're about to start season two or have, you know, those episodes will be going out. Uh, we got some really good episodes in there. Yeah. 
Um, People seem to be enjoying the IBO stuff. Yeah. Um, and we didn't rate the stairs in Man with a Movie Camera, but I feel like C. Yeah, C. It's been maybe a little... even like a D plus. It's been eight days since we watched this, so I'm having a There's little trouble recalling. D. Yeah, let's just go to D. There's like that one at the beach. Yeah. We definitely see stairs, but like... It's not an F, but like D. Yeah. Which I was expecting some stairs. Yeah. There's gotta be... There gotta be fucking stairs in Moscow. It's... It's about everyday life. Yeah. Where we're... Whatever. (laughs) Um, I was like, wait, where was this shot? Um... Yeah, Moscow, Kiev, and Odessa. Anyway, we're done. We're done. Nanahachi is real. God damn it, Mike, no. Nanahachi is real. Nanahachi is real.
Hello. Hey. We're in the non-homophobia zone. Yeah. Um, we were going to talk about Gundam F91 here, just because I... My energy's not quite right to start the show, but, like, I didn't have a ton to talk about in the non-homophobia zone, other than, like, The Wire, but I don't know. Yeah. You've never seen The Wire. No. I really enjoyed the first season that I watched this week, but, like, it's just... Here's what I'll say about The Wire. Here's my big take on season one. I think I will probably have more takes as we as I go through the next four seasons because I watched seasons one and two when I was like 16 maybe maybe younger even um and very much at that time I was caught up in the Lem has found the way to make the most noise in that moment yeah um so I watched I watched season one of The Wire when I was like 15 ish um, definitely after the show had ended, um, and it had sort of this, got this cultural legacy already at that time, which has gotten complicated in the years since, but hasn't changed at all. Yeah. Um, and, and definitely as a white kid from suburbs, uh, definitely I watched it and I was like, wow, man, this is so real, Yeah. you know, um, which definitely... Lots of lots of white people watched that show and learned everything they've ever learned about race from that show. And part of the reason why I have not watched The Wire. Right. <clears throat> Is there a sort of a cultural moment around it that I just somehow missed? I don't know. I mean, it was what... on HBO and not a lot of people yeah, had we HBO. We didn't have HBO. This was 2002. So I'm still in high school. It it being on HBO, I think, mm-hmm. contributes to that that cultural legacy because at that time, HBO was a like the rich people you knew had HBO. Yeah, most people did not have HBO. But and so I feel like it's a lot of that stuff. My parents like a lot of the HBO kind of stuff, like Sopranos. Mm-hmm. My parents watched later by getting the DVDs through Netflix or whatever. Yes, And so, like, Sopranos I never saw because my parents, after I left and went to to undergrad, that's when they were watching Sopranos. Mm -hmm. And I saw, like, two episodes, Mm -hmm. right? If they watched The Wire in that, that would have been how it happened. Right. But it was kind of a... a, And I feel like at the time, there was maybe some talk about it, but it wasn't like everybody was talking about it in the same way that yeah. people talk about HBO stuff now. Yeah. At least where I was. Yeah. The wire and the Sopranos both are like very much changed the, like very much made HBO shows like an important thing to talk about, which ended up being like an important cultural position to put yourself in right before Netflix happens. Yeah. You know, right before like breaking bad and, and prestige TV happens it, to be slightly ahead of that wave just made the HBO stuff feel important. Yeah. And so it's one of those things of like, oh, maybe I'll check that out at some point, but I didn't have like active friends who were excited about it. And then mm-hmm. when I went to grad school at the University of Chicago, uh, somebody was like, oh, yeah, they have all of the wired in the law library. But it's like impossible to get because everyone's constantly checking it out because like all the law students love the wired. Oh yeah. And sure. that just I was just like, oh, I guess that show's not for me. Yeah, sure. If like that's the like 
at University of Chicago law students, they have it in the law library. I was just like, maybe this show isn't the show I want to watch. Yeah. And then it wasn't until like much later that I had friends that were like, oh yeah, The Wire, that was really good. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, oh, maybe I should watch that sometime. So. I did ask Emily, do you want to watch it at some point? And she was like, maybe. You need I to think, sell me on it. I think it's a little more violent than her tastes. She watches weird. Yeah, she does watch weird violent stuff sometimes. Yeah. Um. But so, but so, she also likes it when there's like a slightly weird uh, genre fiction thing happening, and specifically when I'm saying that I mean like speculative e yeah. genre fiction. So, so that's the that's the thing about. Here's the thing about the wire. The other the other important thing you have to remember is that it ran from 2002 to 2008, and it is very. So I saw two seasons as a kid. I saw one season this week. Right. Yeah. At least in what I have seen, it is very much about, like, where culture was at during the Bush years, which then, with Obama getting elected, I think further launches the wire into this cultural stratosphere of, the racism's over. We voted for Obama. We all watched the wire. Racism's over now, you know? Yeah. Um, Because what the wire actually is what the wire actually does is that it is a pretty good slightly above pulp tv show yeah it is like it is a like pulp cop show that has enough like talent in the writer's room to like elevate it into um and I don't even like the term elevate it, but can you hear like uh, M typing in the line? Yeah, yeah. I'm like I'm like searching for the words right yeah. now, honestly, because I don't like the word elevate. But it is it is a good procedural. When you get it is a very 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 good procedural. And the thing that it um. In that moment, there hadn't been a procedural that went over the course of a season like that, you know. It's like one case worked over a season, and so it has all the, like, nitty-gritty procedural stuff that you want to do, but it feels like there's a progression to it because the writers do a really good job of writing that progression to it, you know? Yeah. Um, And that's all it is. I really like the characters. The cast is just impeccable. Like, up and down the board, everybody is putting in work, and the writers give them really good stuff to work with. You know, like, there's there's no one on the cast who I think is, like, perfunctory or not doing a good job. Like, all those actors are doing good, and the writers are doing good by them. At least in season one. My vague impressions is that as the seasons go on, that might not be so true. It seems like maybe the writers are going to pick favorites from here on, and, like, um, it'll get a little more... I don't know. That's just my vague cultural understanding and and truly it's not that serious i watched it i like i watched the whole thing in like two days it's just a good tv show that's all it is it's just a really fucking good tv show (laughs) um it's it's not that smart about race but it was probably smarter than anything else on tv in 2002 um and it's just a good TV show. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, the other thing... <laughs> circling back, circling back, circling back. We were also going to talk about Gundam F91 back here in the non-homophobia zone, just because, like I said, I kind of like, we turned on the mics, my energy wasn't there, wanted to get into the conversation with something, so... Yeah. We watched F91. Cinema Genai. <laughs> <laughs> um, I enjoyed it a lot. It's fucking great, dude. And I think... <clears throat> this is the thing that I was watching... Like, in a way that I, I don't think I've really had with another show so far. Because I've kind of... I, I've been trying to, like, catch up with GGP. And that means a certain amount of watching through, like, Tomino Gundam in order. Mm-hmm. But I'm also sometimes just being like, well, yeah, I'll just start watching G Gundam because it's not really related. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, and I've previously seen Gundam Wing... Um, I'm like watching along with the podcast now, so I'm like watched, you know, watching. I watched Seed and watching Sea Destiny. All this, everything's been like jumbled together. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I started Victory yesterday after work, and I, I did them at 25 hours later. I had watched seven episodes of Victory Gundam. Uh-huh. Now part of this is that my wife and toddler are out of town, mm. and so I can just get off of work. And watch Victory Gundam until I have to record mm-hmm. with them. And, you know, we did Around Longfire, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've just been, like, uh, extremely Gundam-brained. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that happened with F91 is I was, like, I feel like if I was watching through and I got to this point, I would have more of the reaction that I think a lot of, like, I was listening to the GGP on it. Uh, I think a lot of people have this of like, oh, it's like very incomplete. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it ends with this is just the beginning, which is kind of yeah funny now because nothing. Yeah. I mean, Crossbone, I guess, came of it, but that yeah, is its came own of weird it. thing. Nothing yeah. came of it. You know, there's no more movies and everything. That manga sells a lot people, of model kits, but no one reads it. Yeah. People say that it's uh, 50 episodes of a TV show compressed down into a movie. That's not correct, but it is like 20 episodes or 15 episodes or something. Yeah. I think I think the actual number is closer to fifteen. Yeah. I think they had, I think they had written three scripts, and they had storyboarded, like, an additional twelve is the number or something like that. Yeah. Um. <coughs> and there's definitely moments where you feel it jumping. I think the biggest thing is that it's like setting stuff up, but you don't get the payoff. Uh-huh. Um. Also, there's a certain, like, urge to reset things a little bit after, like, doing this far more continuous, like, one-year war and then the stuff afterwards. So you get this, like, 30-year time skip. It doesn't feel, like, quite enough to, like, have it be yeah. different the way that it feels like Tomino wants it to be different. Yeah. Um, this, this is the first gesture at something that I feel like he'll finally nail with um, Turne. Yeah, so this is the thing. I was watching it and being like, oh, this is the first thing that I've watched, like doing the Tomino in order, aside from my watch Turne already, where I'm like, I see how he makes Turne. Absolutely. Because all the stuff before, I don't see how he makes Turne. Yeah. You know, Turne f- like felt m- miraculous that like such a fantastic <laughs> show. Not that I don't deeply yeah, love but- Double Zeta or something, but like... It's it's there's so many things in the mix of Turne and I I knew that like the way that you know I I've watched plenty of artists work like 
extended with directors and stuff. It's very rare that you watch a movie where, like, you know, if you're doing a, a series of movies by a director, where you get to one and you're like, wow, this one is just completely different than everything else that they've done. Right. And Turne felt a little bit like that as yeah. I was just watching through other Universal Century stuff. Yeah. Um, but then I hit this and I was like, oh, okay, this feels like the missing link that I had in my head that I knew I would find somewhere. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's especially funny listening to the GGP episode on it because uh, Em and Jackson are like, yeah, it feels like it should be like at least 300 years. And I'm like, it's it's at least 300 years in Turne. Uh, <laughs> And then being like like, weirdly specific. I wish that we just got more time to like develop the characters here. And it's like, yeah, you'll get that in turn. eh? (laughs) Um, I like how there's like a little bit of like beginning to explore, like not just the, the people on the, you know, fighting, but like just some of the, the people on the ground, like, you know, trying to run a farm or (laughs) especially, especially to that point in UC, the opening of F91 is the best that Tomino has done at expressing not like a simplistic war is bad, but like here is how war hits regular people. So yeah. much of 79 through Double Zeta through Shars Counterattack is so focused on military life. Yeah. And F91 and, like, the other some shows... civilians get fucked up in the process, but often it is, like, oh, here's the civilian who, like, gets kind of, like, comes aboard the ship and all of this stuff, where it's, like, this is not the war story that my Oma's telling of just, like, they bombed the school that I lived in. Yeah. And I had to crawl out through the rubbish, rub, like, rubble and dead bodies. In in episode one of 0079, you see the, um, you see, episode like... Episode one does have some of this. But, yeah. but... The thing I will say is that you always see Amuro, you see that all through Amuro's eyes yeah. in a big way. And this sort of um, detaches the camera a little bit and allows you to just like, here's just one shot of a woman getting hit with a shell casing that's falling and yeah. she dies and just then the, the baby gets scooped up. Things. You know, the the camera is able to roam around off of the protagonists a little bit more in a way that it's going to do in a huge way in turn A. Yeah. And I also feel like, because I'm seven episodes in the victory now, victory does a little bit. Uh-huh. At least in the beginning. Katagina Luce does um, see that war-torn countryside and be like, those people had it coming. <laughs> or whatever yeah. it is she thinks to herself. Yeah. <laughs> in, like, episode two, she sees, like, the yeah. burning town, and she's like, oh. Whatever, fuck them people. Um, yeah, so I think part of my uh, like extra affection I had for it was one seeing it and being like, "Oh, Turne is a great show, and I can see how he's going to get there now," and that's like exciting to me. Uh huh. Because I I didn't see how he got to Turne before. Really, I, I, I think... as much as I deeply love Double Zeta, and I think you're going to see more of that in um, Victory too. Yeah. Victory. So the thing about Turne, right? Is that like you? You really in Zeta and Double Zeta, you have to kind of and in seven Double O Seventy Nine to a lesser extent, but Double O Seventy Nine is enough of a children's show for children that you don't have to do this. Yeah, Zeta and Double Zeta, you spend so much time trying to track character motivations that are there, but you no one says I'm doing this because I feel this way, or or. 
they'll do it, but there's like a layer of like, what do they really mean by that? Yeah. You know, Camille says, I feel this way, but we also know Camille has trouble expressing himself. So like, what is he really feeling? You know? Yeah. Um, and Turney, I think does such a good job of putting on the surface, like the things that you as a viewer need to know, whereas you have to spend so much time in the other shows picking through, what do I need to know here? What's important? Um, I got to make sure I didn't miss the little detail where there's nano machines on the whatever, you know. Um, and then the, Vict- the Vict- little detail of the nano machines, they're going to reiterate. Yeah. In turn A. You're just in the middle. You yeah. just got that introduced and you don't know what any of that means. I got to get back to watching turn A. Um, Victory. I watched about half of Victory before I, I, I fell off. Truly, that is just down to. I have a hard time keeping up with series. I really enjoyed the half of Victory that I watched. I just, you know, have a hard time with series sometimes. And um, Victory was definitely the one where it was the most time spent. What does this character really mean when they say this? What is the, like, ulterior motive? What is going on off screen? Um, You know. uh, Yeah. And so, but also, so I think it's like, in some ways, like, the farthest from what Turn A does, but also so much of Victory is taking place in just, like, you know, Japanese Europe. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, that, like, you can definitely see visually a lot of Turn A in Victory, for sure, I think. Yeah. Um, but also the F-91 is just a sick Gundam. Yeah, the F-91 is a great fucking Gundam, dude. Uh, the F ninety one. I got a check in the mail finally for my parents for my birthday. Uh huh. Um, that was mailed a full week after my <laughs> birthday, uh, and most of that has gone into getting some gunpla kits, uh-huh. uh, including already got the F ninety one in there. Well, so I also got the Sazabi because Alexis got me the new Gundam. Mm-hmm. I got the Sazabi to go with it now. I I and um... Arjarja because. Uh, Charasun. Charasun yeah. is how you say. I, I'm always tempted to do the Char thing with her. Name. Yeah, sure. But Charasun is my bitch. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time that I've gotten a, a gunplay kit and being been like, I also just want a figure of this character to sit next to it. Particularly of like, hopefully of her just like ripping her, sh- her like shirt open. <laughs> when- <laughs> F91 is the first show I or first Gundam I watched where I was like I want to build one of these, you know. Yeah. Um and I think part of that just comes down to it's just animated better than Yeah. Anything. I mean it's really well animated. It's so good. Um Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of all my F91 thoughts. It's good. <laughs> also, uh Corozo Iron Mask is yeah. a fucking ridiculous man. Yeah. I love so him. He's so he's so delightful. Also, I just love Cecily. I yeah. just love her. I just love her so much. Yeah. That's the real thing is... They put the cutest anime girl in that one. Like, Quest is good, but, like... There's not, like, Char's counterattack characters mm-hmm. that really jump out to me in the same way. Yeah. Um, And even, like, Quest is just, like... You, there's, I just want more of, like, that character. Uh, Where when I think of her, I'm just like, eh, I'll peel play. Like... Mm. Like, a lot of what I'm getting... There's differences. But a lot of, like, the main appeal that I initially have with Quest is, like, okay, Plov has me, an entire story. For me, it's, like, four. But, yeah, yeah, same. You know? Yeah. 
Um, I already knew all that already is still great. Yeah. Or whatever the I already exactly. knew all that. Yeah. Um, Should we get into the show? I think so. Building one other Gunpla. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's from IBO, so. Okay. I shouldn't talk about it on the podcast because Em's listening. Unless we're like, uh, M, stop listening. Mm-hmm. Anybody who hasn't seen the end of Iron Blooded Orphan, stop listening. No, just no? let M, just let M be. M can stop listening, and then I'll just say they, what it is. They're EM underscore being right now. You gotta let them be. <laughs> I am. They can then hit stop, or they can hit next episode. Okay. This is anyone who has not seen the end of Iron Blooded Orphans, like the last episode. I promise that after this, the non homophobia zone will end. Yeah. This is the last thing that we're saying in the non homophobia zone. I'm building this suit that kills the main character. It's great. <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs>